What's in store for retail in 2022? Industry reaction to the Biden Trucking Action Plan and new technologies impact parcel delivery. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aftian. Aftian is a global provider of mission-critical, industry-specific logistics and transportation management solutions. Aftian Routing and Scheduling delivers the most advanced transportation management systems to world-leading brands, helping to streamline daily operational processes, including route planning and proof of delivery. If you're ready to make savings of up to 30% and unlock the value of your transportation operation, Aptian can help. Visit aptian.com and discover what's next now. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insight into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, retail took off in 2021 after a very rocky 2020. But what's in store for the coming year for the retail industry? To find out, here is Ben with today's guest. Ben? Thanks, Dave. We all know that e-commerce has soared during the pandemic with people working from home, avoiding large crowds and shopping online. That trend has made a huge impact in the pure volume of parcels being fulfilled and delivered, of course, but it's also creating a wave of change in the way that people shop and correspondingly that stores and warehouses and fleets deliver those goods. Here with us today to talk about those changes and what changes in the retail landscape we might see in 2022 is Nikki Baird. Uh, Nikki, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nikki is a former retail analyst, an ongoing Forbes contributor, and the vice president of retail innovation at Aptos, a technology vendor that works with retail brands around the world. Aptos is an enterprise software vendor that provides omni-channel commerce and merchandise lifecycle management products. Uh, Nikki, one of the trends that you've been tracking is the increasing popularity of something called buy now, pay later, mostly on e-commerce sites, but also increasingly in some physical retail stores. Uh, how is that different from just charging a purchase to your credit card and what challenges are retailers see- seeing with it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it has a lot of similarities from a credit card perspective, both in how the retailer views it and how the consumer views it, but there's a couple key differences. So from the retailer perspective, it it processes just like a credit card purchase. Uh, so they, you know, if a consumer comes in and buys $100 worth of stuff, then the retailer processes it like a payment. And then uh, when it settles, they will get less than $100. Uh, you know, like say 97 or whatever, very similar to credit card fees. And then from the consumer perspective, they will owe the $100 to the buy now, pay later company, which typically the biggest difference is from the consumer perspective, they're expected to pay it back in like four or five installments. Uh, Hmm. So quickly, it's not, you know, you don't, you don't charge it to your credit card and then you're paying it back for the next 10 years if you pay the minimum balance. Hmm. And a lot of times there's no interest charge to the consumer if they do pay it back in the four monthly installments. Uh, So then from the consumer perspective, it's great if you keep up with those payments, but if you 
miss those installments or go over, then you do start racking up fees or interest from the, the buy now, pay later company. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Uh, well, it sounds like that's an effective way, uh, especially with some of the supply chain challenges and, and pandemic challenges um, to, to keep uh, buying behaviors going on. Uh, and indeed, over the holiday peak from the numbers that I've seen, we've seen um, store traffic rebound at a lot of retailers. But it also sounds like the shopping experience um, might be different from what people remember from before the pandemic uh, in terms of retailers sort of mirroring some of the digital engagement that people are used to on websites. Um, is that what you've seen also? And, and how does that impact the way that stores operate in terms of their inventory? Yeah, I think there's more awareness that consumers are spending much more time online and that's going to shape what happens in the stores. I think the biggest challenge has been trying to roll out any kind of change to meet retailers' needs or uh, consumers' needs from a digital perspective. So um, I think probably the, the most impacted place has been payments with um, you know, contactless and things like that, trying to bring more of that digital experience in the store. And then the other side of it is on the inventory side around kind of the fulfillment that you could have effectively contactless fulfillment if you wanted um, curbside or, you know, buy online, pick up in store. Uh, those kinds of options have definitely taken a huge upswing during the pandemic. Really interesting, yeah, and and that can really accelerate the way in in which uh, stores manage that inventory. Um, but you also pointed out in in some of your research that um, omnichannel shopping behaviors have pushed legacy IT systems uh, close to their breaking point. Uh, so we might see a jump in investments in modern technology in the coming year in 2022. Um, can you give us some more details on uh, what you're seeing in that area? Yeah, I mean, especially as it comes to inventory, a lot of the retailers have kind of isolated their merchandising and inventory management systems, which literally some of them still, you know, run on the mainframe, <laughs> and are uh, are protected from uh, a lot of the change that's been happening from an omni-channel perspective. But uh, you know, when you have to be very dynamic, like during the pandemic, retailers literally had to turn stores on and off. From a fulfillment perspective is this store open this week or not and if that's not a change that you can affect rapidly then it really hamstrings your ability to distribute inventory to stores uh, same as well as um, kind of creating dynamic attributes for stores like most retailers didn't particularly care that much if a store had doors that opened on the street versus store doors that opened in a mall, right? And during the pandemic, they very much cared about that because malls were closed and there was very little ability or willingness for consumers to kind of go into a store in that situation, whereas a store with doors that fronted a street could do, you know, could do delivery, could do pickup, could do curbside. So, uh, you know, being able to assign those kinds of attributes to stores that you never really cared about before and then execute inventory strategies based off of some of those store attributes that really did break a lot of systems that were just not designed either to add those attributes on the fly or just to deal with the rapidly changing dynamic of you know which stores am i going to ship to right now or not and that that really did create a lot of challenges for retailers 
Yeah, no doubt. Boy, I can imagine the headaches um, in, in a situation like you described with uh, turning a store uh, at a particular location on and off week to week. To week. But um, And unfortunately, we're seeing some Omicron rise uh, right now. So um, and, and retailers had better be uh, staying flexible uh, heading forward, I guess. Um, a, a little further to that point, though, um, you also had a great line where you say that in your research, retailers are at the point where they know they can't fake it anymore, uh, and they really need to have real-time inventory visibility, uh, which seems to be digging in a little bit deeper to what you were just describing there. Um, but of course, visibility is something that businesses and, and we at the magazine have been talking about for years. Um, yes. Is there any reason to think it'll work out better this time around? I I mean, I guess I'm an optimist. <laughs> I, I, I'm right there with you. I've been talking about inventory visibility since I first became, you know, a retail analyst in 2005. And, and actually, you know, even prior to that in my career, and it just still does not seem to get better. But, you know, when I talk about inventory visibility in this context, it's really more of an omni-channel focus. And I think that's, that's driving a need for uh, much greater granularity in inventory visibility. And also it's definitely, you know, really stretching the definition of real time. Like if you're, if you've got consumers who are on your website and they're ordering stuff, you really do need to be able to commit to those orders with inventory that is available to promise, you know, in the moment. And uh, a lot of retailers have taken approaches where they basically take a snapshot of their inventory once a day, and then they've got their order management solution that they're using to, to basically try to keep track of any of those minute inventory changes that are happening day to day. So that's one part of the problem. And then the other part of the problem, it isn't quite as much about inventory visibility in the traditional sense. It's more about inventory strategy and providing visibility into how inventory is getting consumed to planners so that they can allocate and replenish inventory appropriately. So that one is really fascinating because that really is where it's like we faked it. We, you know, we didn't deal with online. We didn't deal with any kind of omni-channel inventory impacts on our stores. We just had a rounding error. We said, hey, look, e-commerce is 3% of our sales. So let's buy 3% more inventory and send it to the warehouse. And they basically just treated it like a big store. And now we've got so much omni-channel inventory movement that's happening in retailers where it's buy online, pick up and store, it's ship from store, it's store to store transfers. There's inventory flying all over the place. And, and retailers are looking at you know, I'm allocating inventory that I thought 100% of it was going to go out the front of the door in walk-in sales, and actually 30% of it or more might be going out the back of the store in fulfillment, in ship from store or pickup in store, and they, they, like they just they they have never planned that way before. So yeah. it really has kind of broken the the systems that retailers use. Fascinating. I, I, I love that. There's inventory flying all over the place. What, what a better uh, way to describe the, the, the business attribute that we're in right now. Um, finally, and, and looking a little bit better here, I, I know I'm talking about real-time visibility, and that's something that um, from my talking with um, software people in, in particular over the years uh, tends to drive the uh, technical people crazy because it, what, what does real-time mean? Uh, to your point, it could be daily, it could be hourly. Um, 
but once you have a better awareness of that, um, you also say uh, that, that retailers are looking into 2022 as a way to revisit some of those inventory strategies. You were just saying that those flows are changing. Um, concepts like dark stores or gray stores, drop shipping, uh, more dynamic fulfillment. Um, it sounds like that is really going to change how inventory gets into the hands of shoppers like all of us. Yeah, it really does. I think, you know, especially as we're definitely into uh, shipping cutoffs <laughs> for the holiday season, uh, you know, the, um, the, the tactic of, of shifting consumer demand from online directly to the stores, the closer you get to shipping cutoffs or where you have to expedite shipping is one really great example of taking a much more dynamic approach where we have uh, some retailers who are basically emptying out their e-commerce DC in the beginning or middle of December and shipping it all out to their stores so that that inventory is positioned to where they can get it closer to the zone where they expect the consumer wants it. And then that way they can extend the amount of time that they have before they hit a cutoff or, or they can charge for expedited shipping because everybody expects it, but they can actually send it standard shipping and still make sure that they hit their service level and kind of make a little money off of what usually is the uh, the loss making part of the business yeah. Uh, yeah. from a shipping perspective. So just like even just changing the rules of the game as you you know get closer to times where the uh, the logistics systems aren't aren't working for you any longer, it, it has a huge impact. And that's just one example. Uh, I think also retailers looking at a portfolio approach to their stores in a region to say, look, you know, I, I live in Denver. I have, you know, let's say I'm a retailer with 10 stores in the Denver metro area. I might designate one as my primary gray store. So it's got a little small front room and a huge back room. And I'm going to do all my ship from store in the area out of the back of that one so that I don't have to impact the operations at other stores where maybe they don't have the back room size or I can huh. now spend more on putting more into the experience that happens in the front of the store, right? There's there's a lot more flexibility if you start opening it up and not thinking about all the stores as sort of that same cookie cutter, either P&L or operations, um, you know, rules that you assign to those stores. It, it really, it makes for a very dynamic environment, but it also gives you lots more opportunities on those edges. So interesting. Yeah, re really some fascinating stuff for us to keep our eyes on in the coming year. Nikki, we really appreciate your being here uh, with us today to talk about some of these. As always, a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, today we've had with us Nikki Baird uh, from Aptos. Back to you, Dave. Thank you, Nikki and Ben. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Victoria, you wrote this week about the industry reaction to the Biden administration's new trucking action plan. What are people saying? Yes, Dave, that's right. So um, last week, uh, as you know, the Biden administration released a plan to help strengthen the country's truck driver workforce. Um, as a little background, this effort is part of the administration's broader plan to address supply chain challenges via the Supply Chain Disruptions Task Force, which was launched in June. Um, the Trucking Action Plan um, includes four main pieces. Uh, the first is uh, helping states reduce barriers to obtaining a commercial driver's license, or CDL. Uh, the second is a 90-day challenge to industry to increase the number of registered driver apprenticeships nationwide. 
the third piece is an outreach and recruitment effort to uh, military, uh, military veterans. And the fourth is something called a driving good jobs uh, partnership between the Department of Transportation and the Department of Labor. Uh, this partnership, um, they say, will investigate sort of industry challenges and identify longer term actions for addressing them. The program consists of so-called listening sessions with government and business leaders on a range of issues, as well as efforts to study them. Um, truck driver pay and an unpaid detention time is one particular issue that they mentioned um, in the action plan that will be um, included in these, these uh, types of sessions. Um, the logistics and transportation industry weighed in way with support for this program. Um, you know, the trade groups said they support, you know, pretty much any effort to boost the truck driver workforce, of course. Um, but so they also said, you know, that more solutions are needed to tackle the longstanding challenges that plague the industry. Um, and although it sounds like there are plans to study and talk about those issues, as I just mentioned in the fourth point of the plan, um, you know, it remains to be seen what kind of concrete efforts may result. So I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, uh, concern or hesitancy there. But largely, um, industry is pretty supportive of this. Right. What, did the industry point to any of the four aspects of the plan as particularly good or bad? Um, yes. So um, the American Trucking Associations, or ATA, pointed out the value of increasing apprenticeships in the industry in particular. Um, in a statement issued last Thursday, and that's the same day the plan was announced, um, Bill Sullivan, ATA's executive vice president of advocacy, um, noted that apprenticeships are really great tools for recruiting and increasing the trucking work workforce for a range of reasons, but um, mainly because they provide an opportunity for people to earn wages and benefits while being trained to do the job. Uh, the cost of training and obtaining a CDL is often borne by the worker, and sometimes you know people can incur debt by doing that. So apprenticeships are viewed as a really good way to boost the ranks. Um, you know, again, because they're they're working, they're earning while they're um, learning, and it's also a, viewed as a sort of a, a safer way to, to learn the industry as well. Another group that weighed in is the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, which represents small businesses and independent professional truck drivers. Um, and they said they were pleased that the plan includes efforts to analyze driver compensation and detention time, which is one of the points I mentioned earlier. But they expressed disappointment that the plan you know, doesn't address what many say are excessively high driver turnover rates in the trucking industry. So that was one issue um, that was particularly um, glaringly missing to them. Um, the association president, Tom Spencer, pointed out attracting and training new drivers won't solve the larger problem of retention which is driven by a range of factors that affect working conditions and lifestyle issues, uh, especially in the long haul segment where drivers are away from home for long periods of time. Just as a side note, one issue related to that is what some in the industry have identified as a lack of parking availability for truckers, which makes it difficult for them, you know, take to take breaks as required by federal regulations and can often lead to them, you know, securing a spot, you know, early in their shift or in their haul, and uh, that leads to backups and delays and things like that. Spencer said um, in industry and government efforts to address these issues should um, help, and I'm quoting here, create an environment where truckers can have long, safe, and productive careers. So again, you know, industry's, you know, happy to, you know, get involved and promote anything that will improve, you know, efforts to recruit and retain um, workers, but um, again, just some questions about sort of some of the longer term issues that plague the industry. Sure, yeah, and that constant churn in, in, in the industry is a problem that we see. Thanks, Victoria. Yes, you're welcome. And Ben, you wrote this week about growth in the parcel delivery technology sector. 
What more can you tell us? Uh, that's right, exactly. Uh, this week, we learned about a, a continuing trend of growth in that parcel delivery sector as uh, startup tech firms and outside investors continue to change the landscape for e-commerce firms and for retail shippers. Uh, as we were discussing with our guest, Nikki, today, uh, the enormous growth of e-commerce is changing everything, uh, warehousing, transportation, and logistics. And one way to measure that evolution is to talk about uh, the life cycle of a single company. Uh, you might remember stamps.com, which was founded uh, way back in 1998 as a provider of internet-based postage services. At the time, they were the first company to be approved by the US Postal Service to offer a software-only postage uh, that lets users buy and print their postage online. So its customers, who are mostly small businesses, could print postage, print stamps, print labels using their own existing computers uh, without having to go stand in line at the post office. Over the years, uh, the e-commerce marketplace, of course, continued to grow enormously, and Stamps.com made a number of acquisitions, uh, buying different startups to manage a, a wider part of the chain of the process. Uh, then this past July, Stamps.com itself was acquired by a private equity investment firm called Toma Bravo for $6.6 .6 billion, and that deal included all those smaller firms that Stamps.com had acquired over the years, uh, something called Metapack, Indicia, uh, Global Post, Shipsy, ShipBot. There was a whole collection. It also included a unit called Octane, which itself held a number of e-commerce shipping tech firms like ShipStation, Shipping Easy, ShipEngine. Uh, so last month, uh, following the acquisition, Stamps.com replaced its CEO. And then just last week, we learned that it had changed its names from uh, from stamps.com to Octane, which is one of those takeovers. Well, that is a lot of change. So how does it affect the company's customers and shippers? Exactly. It all comes down to who's actually using this stuff, right? Uh, and business conditions, as we've been discussing, uh, have never been so busy for these e-commerce retailers. Um, that change also means that retailers and shippers have never had so many options for getting product to customer. Uh, and that goes way beyond the original proposition that stamps.com was founded to address, which was simply waiting in line at the post office. Uh, so in fact, this week we saw the new Octane make yet another acquisition. Uh, just yesterday, it bought the Spanish shipping platform, uh, a startup called Packlink. And in a statement, Octane said that the accelerated growth of e-commerce over the last two years has created the need for online sellers to rapidly scale and optimize their delivery processes. So the company thinks that that latest acquisition uh, can move forward uh, toward that goal. Time will tell if that's the right strategy, but we can say that Octane is certainly not the only company investing in this area. Uh, in fact, also this very week, we heard about a New York-based parcel tech provider called Viho. Uh, they landed venture capital funding of $125 million for its service of uh, personalized next-day package delivery for e-commerce brands. So obviously that sounds like a very familiar approach and they're chasing some of the same goals there. So clearly there's a rush to reorganize the methods and the technology and the investments in this sector. And it's a really interesting story to cover. Yes, it does seem to be. And certainly a lot of solutions that are gonna be out there and a lot of needed solutions, something we'll continue to track. Thanks, Ben. Yep, look forward to it. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. 
And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks, Ben and Victoria, for sharing highlights from the news this week. Glad to be here, Dan. Yes, absolutely. You're welcome. And again, our thanks to Nikki Barrett of Aptos for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded on Fridays. And speaking of subscribing, we encourage you to check out our new 11-part limited podcast series from CSEMP's Supply Chain Quarterly on the top 10 supply chain threats. This week, we address the disruption of the threats of weather and storms and how they can disrupt supply chains. So search on your favorite podcast platform for the top 10 supply chain threats to subscribe and to listen to past episodes. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian routing and scheduling supports logistics and delivery fulfillment operations with the tools needed to optimize resources, automate route planning and proof of delivery processes, and drive savings of up to 30%. Your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service, reduce costs, and drive growth. Aptian routing and scheduling can help. Visit aptian.com and discover how now. We're going to take a short holiday break next week, so we won't be back again until our podcast releases on January the 7th, when Dan Johnson of Workstep will be our guest to talk about driver shortages in the trucking industry. So be sure to join us then, and until then, have a very Merry Christmas and a great holiday season. See you next year. <music>